Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And then all of my podcast materials and episodes can be found on the major third-party directories, Apple, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, all of those places. Then I have a blog that I wrote in up until really the Austin oral argument. And I started the blog in 2019 and there's some stuff there that I think is worth checking out. And you can find the blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. And in the last episode, we talked about Linda Livingstone's testimony at the September 30th hearing in the House. And I said I was going to do the next episode on the collegiate model because that was really a central component of Livingstone's testimony. And that testimony, her discussion of the collegiate model, although she doesn't use the phrase collegiate model, and that's an interesting thing, but her discussion about the business model that requires this diversion of wealth from football, men's basketball to downstream beneficiaries really was elicited by, I think, some pre-planned questioning from two Republican congressmen at that hearing. And it's really interesting stuff. So we'll get to that soon. But I realized as I wound up that last episode that I left out an important component that ties into this quest for preemption. And that is the enforcement side of this. And One of the things that is so important about getting preemption, if you're the NCAA or you're a Power Five conference, you want a nationally uniform enforcement mechanism that gives you extraordinary powers that really exceed the powers that the NCAA has right now. And that's been an important component of so many of these bills, these proposals that have come through the Senate. And there's actually one in the House that does this as well. But I want to talk a little bit about how the enforcement piece came up at the hearing. The central question is, who is in charge? And when you look at the after scenario, if the NCAA and the Power Five get preemption, what does the federal authority look like? Who is in charge? What body, what entity, what people will be making decisions regarding the authorities provided under the federal legislation relating to name, image, and likeness? And that came up at this hearing because those two issues are inextricably linked. The preemption power, the federal government stepping in, and then the enforcement issues. And Linda Livingstone was very coy on that topic, but she knows exactly what she wants, what the Big 12 wants, and what the NCAA wants. So I'm going to go through her testimony and talk about how that issue came up, how she handled it, and then I'm going to go to what I believe are the blueprints for what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries really want through a federal enforcement entity. And it is not at all what it seems on its face. Again, just another one of these things where there is some really high-powered misdirection going on here. And when Dr. Livingstone was responding to questions from Bob Blatta, a Republican from Ohio, she invoked the enforcement issue. And Latta actually interrupted Dr. Livingstone during one of her answers. And he said, look, can I interrupt for just a second here? And he was talking about the problems with inducements for transfers. That was the context of his question. And he said, is that a problem? And then Dr. Livingstone responded, potentially. The concern was that athletes at smaller institutions that didn't have institutional nil opportunities there that were very attractive might be lured to go to a larger school that had a better system in place and had a better way to help these athletes exploit their name, image, and likeness opportunities. And she said, so yeah, we have a you know pay-for-play issue. And she said, we need to find out ways to put parameters around that. And then she pivots to enforcement. She says, and then the other piece of it is the enforcement piece of it. Because right now, many of the state laws do not have an enforcement mechanism in them. So they say you can't do pay for play, but there's no enforcement mechanism when these kinds of issues arise to be able to look at them to see if they actually violate pay for play. So that is the other reason a national standard and some national enforcement mechanism would be important so that there is not just consistency in the standards, but also consistency in the enforcement. 
So it was clear in Livingstone's prep for this through her lobbyists and all the people that were orchestrating this kabuki theater, that enforcement was one of the talking points. And they wanted her to come back to that because that is going to be an important component of the NCAA reestablishing itself at the national level and trying to restore relevance. And then in response to questions from Robin Kelly, who is a Democrat from uh, Illinois, I believe. But Kelly asked a question that went directly to who should be in charge of regulation at the federal level. And that was really the focus of uh, Representative Kelly's questions. And she started with Ramoji Huma and asked him whether the NCAA should be in charge of regulating at the national level in NIL. And he said no. And he's been clear about that. He wants to take the NCAA completely out of the picture. And then uh, Kelly turns to Livingstone and asks her whether a new independent entity should be in charge of monitoring compliance and enforcement with name, image, and likeness at the national level. And she says, do you think that a new entity should be established or is there already an existing entity that could take on that role? And I believe that question was clearly designed to get Livingstone to say whether or not the NCAA should be involved. And Livingstone kind of dances around that. But Livingstone's response is, I do think that an independent body could be very effective in doing this. I do think we have to be careful that it is not a political body that has political influences in how it makes that decision. I'm going to use a specific example. One of the things we struggle with at colleges and universities is the Title IX legislation, which has had a huge impact on women and college sports. But as each administration changes, our Title IX policies have to change. And so there is a deep inconsistency from administration to administration in what we do with regard to enforcing Title IX. And so I think we need to make sure if it is an independent body, it is truly independent. It has people on it that understand college athletics and nil issues and that it has a fair mechanism for enforcement on a national level. So when you listen to Livingstone's testimony on enforcement, you clearly get the impression that she thinks it's important. It's absolutely essential. And consistency in enforcement is an important issue in this whole nil debate. But then when she was asked specifically about what that looks like, she's a little cagey and she just lays out some broad criteria for what she thinks would be uh, desirable and undesirable. But she doesn't come out and say that she wants a particular entity with particular powers and authorities to be in charge of this. And she doesn't specifically say what role the NCAA should have. She just says that, yeah, people who understand college sports absolutely need to be involved. But I have a sneaking hunch that Linda Livingstone knows precisely what she wants that board to look like. And why do I say that? Because in all of this proposed legislation that's come out of the Senate primarily and the House to a lesser extent, the national enforcement apparatus is an important issue. It's actually a crucial issue and far more important to the advocates of preemption and the NCAA's platform and the Power Five's platform than they let on. And I've mentioned this in prior episodes, but I want to drill down on it right now in the context of the uh, NCAA and Power Five lobbying efforts and the bills that they are pushing and the bills that they are opposing behind the scenes, because that is a perfect window into what the NCAA and the Power Five and the Big 12 and Linda Livingstone want on the back end. We don't have to speculate. We just go right to the bills that the lobbyists are promoting and the bills that the lobbyists are opposing. And one of the things that has happened is the NCAA has lost credibility and relevance through the summer of 2021 is that the notion that the NCAA should be put in charge of anything is an increasingly difficult position to defend. And uh, so the NCAA, I think this is part of the scramble for relevance and credibility and bringing Gates in. But if you are a proponent of, the, of preserving the status quo, as Livingstone is, you really can't come out and say, yeah, the NCAA needs to be in charge of this. They know what college sports is all about. They know it better than any 
everybody else. That argument didn't look too good now in the fall of 2021. And Cuma's argument that if there is a national bill and they get preemption and there's a uniform standard and there has to be a national enforcement mechanism, it can't be the NCAA. And that is the argument that is a winning argument right now. So what are the proponents of the status quo do? What does the NCAA do? What do the Power Five do? What does Linda Livingstone do? Well, they disguise their intentions, but what they really want is a backdoor way to get the NCAA back in the decision-making chair when it comes to the national enforcement of name, image, and likeness. And so to explain how that works, I want to talk a little bit about the frameworks that have been set up by these proposals. And this is true with the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill out of the House. And then there's another bill that, that came out in May of 2021 from another Ohio Republican. These Ohio boys are just chock full of brilliant ideas. But Shabbat uh, introduced a bill with some Orwellian title that basically would have put the NCAA in charge through a disguised federal corporation. But all these bills use a third-party commission or they use a federal corporation or they use some kind of third-party administrator as the conduit for the national enforcement and, importantly, for identifying the specific parameters of any nil market. So those third-party entities would have enormous power, but when you look at them and who is required to sit in the decision-making chairs, it is nothing more than a replication of the NCAA bureaucracy. And Linda Livingstone knows that. So what I want to do to, to tease this out and bring it back around to Livingstone's testimony is to Look at the lobbying activity of the lobbyists for the Big 12 conference. And in this episode, I'm going to focus only on the Big 12 lobbying. I intend to do a series on the lobbying efforts of all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiary interests, the NCAA, the Power Five, individual schools later on, because when you look at the army, literally an army of lobbyists and an array of lobbying firms, some of the most powerful in the world, it's just breathtaking the firepower that the NCAA and Power Five have brought to this to manipulate the political process, to completely steamroll the market and eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And that's what this is about. And they're just so good at it. And when you listen to the testimony at this hearing, it's a perfect example. But I want to talk a little bit about the lobbying presence that the Big 12 has, because it is substantial. And one of the themes that I really wanted to establish in my work, both the blog and the podcast, Podcast. And I said this very early on and wrote about it very early on, that the college sports marketplace, the future of college sports, isn't being decided by a broad range of interested stakeholders in higher education and in big time college sports and in the lower level iterations of college sports. They're not sitting down at, in conference rooms having level-headed, thoughtful intelligent discussions about the current state of college sports and what needs to happen to reform it. Those discussions simply aren't on the radar screen. The real power players here are the lobbyists, the lawyers, and the spin doctors. And these lobbying disclosures that I'm looking at for the big 12 lobbyists is just a good window into that. And as I go through this, just remember, this is just a tiny sliver of the overall lobbying activity. This is just through the lens of the big 12 conference, but that's relevant here because Linda Livingstone is on the board of directors of the big 12 conference and she sits at the top of the heap there. She is a main officer of that entity. And again, all of the, these conference entities are a separate nonprofit from any other interest within the conference. So you have the individual institutions and then the institutions combined to form conferences and the conference entities are education nonprofits, just like the, the universities are. But in 2019, 2020, 2021, through the heat of this perfect storm and this debate about name, image, and likeness, which was really a debate about federal protections and immunities that would essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement. But the Big 12 had three lobbying firms working for it. And 
These are heavy hitters in Washington, D.C., and I'm just going to go through each one using the format of these disclosure forms that are required. These are federal requirements, and if you're going to engage in lobbying activity, you have to register and declare your interests, who you are lobbying for, and what you are lobbying for. So firms fill these out in, in different ways, but you get a sense of what exactly the issues are and what they're targeting. And th so there are three firms. One is Elmendorf Ryan, and that is a big firm. The other is Marshall and Pop, and they do a lot of work in athletics. And when you look at the lobbying reports for the other Power Five conferences, you see Marshall and Pop's name quite a bit. And then their third is a outfit called Kit Bond Strategies. And all of these firms are making a bunch of money off the Big 12. And in these disclosure reports, they list all this basic information. It also tells you how much in round figures, the client, in this case, the client's the big 12, how much they pay these lobbyists. And it's not clear if that captures all of the money, but it's about as good as it gets. So I'm just going to go with the low hanging fruit. And these are the required federal disclosures, but the big 12 conference has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to have these people go in and lobby the hell out of the Senate and the House with respect to specific legislation that has very specific goals and objectives. And Linda Livingstone, as the vice chair and uh, director of the Big 12 Conference, knows full well exactly what these bills are about, exactly what's in them, what bills the Big 12 Conference is promoting and what bills they are opposing. And when she gets a question about what an enforcement mechanism ought to look like, she knows exactly what she has in mind, but she's not going to come out and identify it in any specific way. And she's not going to tie it to any existing bill because that's not the way this game is played. She is there to sit behind the microphone at the witness table, lay out these broad themes as if she's just some uh, university president with no access to all this uh, behind the scenes information and she just wants to do what's best for the student athletes i don't know i think reasonable people can disagree about whether the legislation i'm going to talk about here really helps these student athletes and in my judgment not only does it not help these student athletes it slams the door on any possibility that in the future we're going to have a market where these athletes can be treated as free americans so now I want to go through each of these forms and talk about the number of lobbyists for each firm and then how they describe the nature of the lobbying issues. So there's a question that says specify lobbying issues. So I'm going to start with, let's see, Marshall and Pop. Okay. So the issues that they claim they are pursuing on behalf of the Big 12 Conference are issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness, including Senate Bill 414, the Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. That is the bill by... Jerry Moran that came out in February, February 21st of 2021, that is a train wreck. And remember, Jerry Moran is a Republican from Kansas, and he is a member of the Senate Commerce Committee. He is the man who held the very first hearing in February of 2020 in a subcommittee of commerce. And that was the hearing where Anthony Gonzalez, the Republican from Ohio in the House, sat in as the very first witness in all seven of these hearings, ostensibly on name, image, and likeness. And I talked about that Moran bill. I believe it was in that episode 24 on current events chaos when I was talking about how these bills disguise their true purpose. And under that law, and remember, that's an Orwellian title, Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. It gives the NCAA and the Power Five everything that they want. It completely shuts down the athletes' rights movement and puts the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation. It provides absolute preemption, not just limited to nil, but to any compensation limit. The states can't regulate at all and tell the NCAA what to do. Absolute 
antitrust immunity, and then a declaration that athletes can't be employees with no limitations. These provisions are as broad as they can possibly be drafted. And that's fundamentally inconsistent with the way that these witnesses pitched their request for federal protections and immunities as limited to, to nil. When you read the fine print, they are not limited to name, image, and likeness. And this specific bill this Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021 is a perfect example of that. And Linda Livingstone knows that, or she sure as heck should know that. So they have Marshall and Pop has two lobbyists and Hazen Marshall and Monica Pop, and they list their affiliations. You also have to list your prior governmental affiliations. Marshall was the policy director for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I didn't know Mitch was on the team. I talked about all those Republicans in the last episode who had swallowed their free market speeches and their 10th Amendment, but I didn't know Mitch was on board here. That's interesting. And then Ms. Pop worked in the Senate office for Republican whip John Cornyn. So you got two more heavy hitters in the Senate. But again, this is a Republican thing. It's a Republican game. And the NCAA was all about trying to get these bills in place while the Republicans controlled the Senate and the White House. So let's move over here to Elmendorf Ryan. And they describe the issues that they are lobbying for on behalf of the Big 12 as issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness. So they're just pulling the same propaganda that the NCAA working group has used throughout and uh, that it really drilled down on in 2019 when the interim report came out on October 23rd and then the Board of Governors issued its press release on October 29th that was covered like the moon landing and everybody was saying compensation is here and ill compensation is here and they treated that announcement as if the it was a done deal and the NCAA had actually changed its legislation which is not true at all again another uh, really interesting piece and a great example of NCAA propaganda and misdirection but there are let's see five lobbyists at Elmendorf Riot who are lobbying on behalf of the Big 12. So we're up to seven lobbyists and two firms. And then the last one is this Kit Bond Strategies firm. And let's see, they don't have a narrative really of the lobbying issues. What they do, and this is really interesting, and I think I'm going to use this as a springboard into talking about the specific legislation and what the Big 12 is promoting what they are opposing. So they say general matters pertaining to the welfare of student athletes in intercollegiate athletics. Welfare of student athletes. All right, let's go down the list. Wait, let me back up. So they have one lobbyist and he apparently was a former congressman uh, from Missouri and they list the bills that they are lobbying. And this isn't just lobbying in favor of, but also lobbying against. I'll just go down in the order in which they are listed. And the first bill is the College Athlete Economic Freedom Act, and it's actually two bills. There are companion bills, one in the Senate, one in the House. The Senate bill is through Chris Murphy, and the House bill is through Lori Trahan, who was at this hearing on September 30th, and I've talked a bit about her and a little bit about that bill. She is in the House, and she authored the College Athlete Economics Freedom Act. It is a pro-athlete bill on its face, but it includes a preemption provision. So I think she's missed the mark here on preemption. And as I said uh, before, you really don't know what the motivations of all these politicians are. They make public comments, ask questions at hearings, and you're led to believe one thing, but you never know. And that's one of the problems with being in the political process because you have just walked into the funhouse and you don't know what you're going to look like on the backside. And that's why it's so important to have these lobbyists to steer you through it and to really make sure that you understand what's happening in the political process. And all of these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have the best lobbyists that money can buy. The athletes don't have a single one. And then this Bill, I just mentioned because it was the specific focus of the Elmendorf firm, and that is the Senate Bill 414, the Jerry Moran Bill, Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. So they are opposing the Trahan Murphy Bill. 
they are lobbying in favor of the Moran bill. And then the next bill they identify is H.R. 2841, the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act, which is the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, which was initially released in September of 2020, re-released in April of 2021. And they are lobbying in favor of that law. Then the next bill is H.R. 3379. H.R. means in the House, and of course, S. means in the Senate. So this is a House bill. And this is really the companion bill to the Moran bill in the Senate. And this House bill is through Steve Shabbat, which I mentioned earlier. He's a Republican from Ohio. This bill is called Modernizing the Collegiate Student Athlete Experience Act. And I'm going to come back to that because that is so similar to the Moran bill and I think is a little more specific in how it addresses the enforcement issues, both the commission that it sets up. Actually, it's not a commission. It's a federal corporation. I'll talk about that in just a minute. And also what those authorities are and the mechanisms through which all of these athlete compensation issues will be managed and regulated and enforced. And then the next bill is the College Athlete Right to Organize Act. That is H.R. 3895, and it was introduced in June of 20. 21, uh, June 15th. So this was before the Austin decision, but while the NCAA was really pressing the gas in the Senate Commerce Committee to try to get preemption. But this is similar to a bill introduced by in the Senate by Chris Murphy and Bernie Sanders. And basically it would require that the National Labor Relations Act be amended to define college athletes as employees. This is the, the NCAA's worst nightmare. So <laughs> big 12 lobbyists here, they want to crush this bill. They don't want this to see the light of day. And remember, the day before this September 30th hearing of the House, the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel issued a, an interpretive memo saying that athletes are indeed employees and that the NLR B was not going to use the term the student athlete. I just love that. So let's see, what is the next bill here? Okay. And this is the last one that's on the kit bond strategies list. This is HR 5216. And that is titled protecting student athletes from concussion act of 2020. And this is a really interesting bill. And there's a, I think I'm going to do a, an entire episode or two on the concussion issue and the regulation of concussion and the litigation surrounding it, because Congress has been involved in this in one way or another, really going back to around 2010 and some hearings that were conducted. And everything that was coming out of the House was uh, really designed to put pressure on the NCAA and the big time football marketplace to take this concussion thing seriously. And so there were a series of bills that were designed to impose mandatory diagnostic protocols and reporting protocols and really have a system in place that was enforceable. And they have all died in committee. And so this HR 5611, Protecting Student Athletes from Concussions Act of 2020, is, is a bill just like that. And it followed up on a bill from 2019 that just died in committee. And this 2020 bill was introduced by Mark Sonnier, who is a Democrat from California. And surprise, surprise, the Big 12 is lobbying against that bill. And they'll come out in public, just like the NCAA propagandizes this all this concussion research. They'll come out and say, oh yeah, we care. We care about these student athletes. But when it comes to actually having enforceable standards and protocols with some teeth, they don't want any part of that. And again, this issue was forced through antitrust litigation that began in 2011 and then was initially resolved in 2014, but through five years of fighting over what the scope of the settlement ought to be, wasn't really resolved until 2019. And it was in a very favorable way to the NCAA. And again, this is just another example of these well-intentioned initiatives that get commandeered by the power players on the NCAA side of the equation. And they will hold up the banner that looks good publicly, but behind the scenes, they are undermining the very things they are promoting. And that's just the way the NCAA rolls. And the concussion issue is a perfect example of that. So there are three firms, eight lobbyists across those three firms, and a whole range 
of legislation that the Big 12 is actively and aggressively either promoting or opposing. And they're working both sides of this equation. And this is big time lobbying. This is big time influence peddling. This is a big time manipulation of the political process to achieve commercial advantage in the college sports marketplace. That's what this is about. That's what this entire discussion has been about from the very beginning in 2019. And when you look at the lobbying reporting forms, it is right there in black and white, and it is ugly. It is just ugly because what these institutions are doing, the NCAA and the Power Five and then individual schools, I haven't even gotten to them yet, but there are individual schools doing the same song and dance. But when you look at it, you just see how dishonest these stakeholders are and how little they care for the interests of student athletes, despite all these Orwellian titles. This is just a Orwellian title Olympics and the NCAA and the Power Five are on the medal stage. Here. And that's a good segue into this bill that I want to talk about as an example of how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries disguise the true nature of what they want in terms of national enforcement if they get preemption and get a piece of federal legislation that governs the name, image, and likeness market. And so the bill that I'm going to use is the Modernizing the Collegiate Student-Athlete Experience Act. <laughs> Again, this title is just, I mean, this takes brass ones just to even uh, title this bill that way. And this is the bill by Shabbat, the House member out of Ohio. And this is very, very similar to the Moran bill. And the reason I wanted to use this bill as the example is because I think this is really what Livingstone was talking about when she was talking about a independent body, truly independent, not a political body, but we want people who understand college sports to be involved in any uh, independent body. And this is the bill that the Big 12 is promoting a specific piece of legislation. We don't have to speculate about what Livingstone was talking about. We have it right here in black and white. And she's sitting on a board of a conference entity that is pressing hard behind the scenes to manipulate Congress into accepting this bill. So I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the bill. And this is designed to provide a mechanism to completely manage the entire name, image, and likeness market and actually any compensation-related market at the federal level. And so I want to talk just about some of the broad features and some of the limitations, but this bill, like many of these bills, is 95% limitation, prohibition, and 5% opportunity. So what this bill does is it doesn't really talk in any specific way about what the nil activity can be. That is left to this federal corporation that is set up to manage all of these name, image, and likeness issues. And so I want to just go through the provision by provision to talk about how this is set up and what the thinking is here, because this is also built around creating a federal police state through which the NCAA, under the disguise of this federal corporation, can have police powers in order to just bring the hammer down on the bad actors. And the bad actors under this bill are agents and third-party contractors, the people who these athletes would do the deals with and the people who would represent the athletes in doing the deals. So I'm just going to go through the bill provision by provision, irrelevant provision by provision. And it is titled, it gives the title, Modernizing the Collegiate Student Athlete Experience Act. And then, and this is its central purpose, is to set up this independent federal corporation. The name of the federal corporation is the National Intercollegiate Compensation Corporation. And Section 2 talks about the establishment of the federal corporation. And it says, there is established a government corporation to be known as the National Intercollegiate Compensation Corporation, which shall not for any purpose be an agency or instrumentality of the United States government and shall be subject to the provisions of this act. And that is a really important here. This federal corporation, this type of entity is like the shadowy type of 
quasi-governmental entity that has some components of a true government agency and then some components of a private actor. And it is a creature of Congress. These can only be created by Congress. They really cover a broad spectrum of activities. I think the U.S. Post Office is a federal corporation, but it can be whatever Congress says that it is, and it can have whatever components of both government entities or private entities that Congress decides. And the other thing about government corporations or federal corporations is that they really don't have any oversight. And there isn't really a national agency that keeps track of what these entities do, how they do their business, and there's very little accountability. So if you're the NCAA or the Power Five and you have a compliant congressional body that is putting together this federal corporation for you, you can basically design it any way you want. And that's exactly what has happened here. But this feature in the very first statement, the very first discussion about this government corporation, when they say that it should not for any purpose be an agency or instrumentality of the United States government, what does that do? It's, it just You just read right through that and you think, well, that doesn't have much consequence, but it has a really uh, important consequence. Because what that means is that this entity, which is going to be a nonprofit entity, will not be treated as a government entity for purposes of due process rights or public disclosures. So it gets all the benefits of being a private entity, just like the NCAA is. And through this Tarkanian decision from 1988, it doesn't have to provide due process protections and enforcement and infractions actions because it's not a state actor. So this very first provision dealing with the government corporation establishes that this entity is not going to be a state actor, which means no due process, no public records requests. All right. And Shabbat doesn't waste any time here. He's getting right down to brass tacks because the next section is membership incorporation. Section one, in general, the members of the corporation shall be institutions of higher education. Well, <laughs> that gives you pretty much 90% of what you need if you're the NCAA or the Power Five. And then section two, eligibility. The criteria for an institution of higher education to be eligible to be a member of the corporation shall be provided in the constitution and bylaws of the corporation. And then uh, section C, board of directors. Who are the individuals, the actual people who are going to sit on this entity that already has the benefits and protections of, of uh, being a private actor and it is limited to institutions of higher education and we're not even into the good stuff yet. But the individuals who will sit on the board of directors of this government corporation, it says that the board shall be composed of the following. One representative from each of the top conferences in annual revenue, as determined under subparagraph B, who shall be chosen by the conference and shall serve a term of three years. So basically, you get a school under that definition from the top 10 conferences in the NCAA. That is the FBS, which means the Power Five conferences and the Group of Five conferences, the big time money players. They each get a representative. This is virtually identical to the way that the NCAA governing boards are structured and the criteria for membership on those governing boards. The Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors, both of which include Linda Livingstone. So this is right up her alley. Number two. One representative from each of the five geographic regions of institutions of higher education that are not members of a conference described above. So we're getting below the 10 big money conferences, and now we're getting into lower division one. And I guess this could include divisions two and divisions three. So you get five members there, and they're supposed to be spread out geographically, I guess, to have some national representation there. So we're up to 15 members, all NCAA insiders. And two-thirds of those 15 are the money players, the big-time college sports money players. So let's see. The third criteria, two former corporate executives who shall be selected as provided in subparagraph D and shall serve a term of two years. And let's see, what do they say in their uh, subparagraph D? Oh, guess who gets to select the two corporate members? Because when they're, when these two people are initially identified, it, it, it creates the impression, the false impression that these are going to be external people that are independent and all that stuff. But when you go down to subsection D, these two people are going to be 
appointed by an intercollegiate athletics association. The only intercollegiate athletics association they refer to here is the National Collegiate Athletics Association. So these two former corporate executives are going to be NCAA insiders. And then let's see, number four, three representatives of an intercollegiate athletics association who shall be selected by the association and shall serve a term to be determined by the association. It's an indeterminable uh, amount of time. They could be lifetime members under that provision, but that's the NCAA here. They're not talking about the NAIA or the NJCAA. They're talking about the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So in uh, just those two categories, you You've got five NCAA uh, lifers, basically. And then the last member, one former student athlete from each of the five geographic regions who shall be chosen by vote of the current student athletes in the region and shall serve a term of three years. I can promise you that the vehicle for selection is going to be this student athletic advisory committee, which is set up by the NCAA. It's like a student council for athletes and they do the bidding of the NCAA by and large. And I'm going to do a separate episode uh, devoted to them. So let's just look at the total composition then. So we have, let's see, 10 big time conference schools, five lower level schools, that's 15. We have the corporate executives appointed by the NCAA, two, and then three actual NCAA representatives. So we're now up to 20 representatives. And then you have five student athletes who are going to be elected or chosen by vote of the current student athletes in the region. That's a total of 25 people. And by definition, 15 of them are going to be coming from the Power Five and the Group of Five or the NCAA Administrative State. So you already have complete control of this federal corporation by NCAA interests and Power Five interests. And then these Five student athletes are very likely to be yes votes to whatever the institutional interests want. So remember that this bill is presented in a way that suggests that there is going to be a truly independent entity. When Linda Livingstone, in response to that question about what kind of entity should be in charge if the nil market is federalized, she said, we have to make sure it's truly independent. This is what she means by independence. This is independence in the eyes of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who don't want any outsiders coming in and messing up their party and messing up their revenue streams and messing up their dominance in the marketplace in big-time college sports. This is independence. But we're not finished yet. This gets even better. How is this corporation going to be funded? Well, it's going to be self-funding. How is the corporation going to achieve that? The corporation shall be funded by fees collected from registered athlete agents and registered third-party licensees or from athlete agents and third-party licensees in connection with application for registration with the corporation. <laughs> I mean, you just, you got to love this. So basically, the bad actors are going to be funding this police state, this federal corporation that is going to be operating like the CIA and the Justice Department. And the reason I say that is because this federal corporation is geared largely towards bringing the hammer down on these bad actors. And so it talks about oversight of athlete agents and third-party licensees. So there's their draconian registration requirements set by the federal corporation. So the federal corporation is in complete control here. They decide what their jurisdiction is. They decide what the rules are going to be relating to the name, image, and likeness marketplace or any other marketplace that they have control over. And there are all these disclosures and documentary strip searches of athlete agents and third-party contracts and limitations on what those contracts can say. All this is limitation. This is, they're not talking at all here about what rights the athletes have. And there is absolutely no scenario under which an athlete's going to have a right of action against a member institution or against a conference or against the NCAA. This is a one-way street. And so then they talk about subpoena power. And this is the thing that is just, it's just shocking to me that this hasn't been reported in the media. And I've read tons of articles about all these bills. And I, the Moran bill has this. And the Moran bill's been out for, let's see, February to October is what, nine months? 
It's been out for nine months and there hasn't been a single article addressing the fact that bill and this bill introduced by Shabbat provide this government corporation subpoena power. And because of the composition of the board of directors of this government corporation, this means that the National Collegiate Athletic Association will have subpoena power. And the act defines that power as, let's see, the board may issue subpoenas requiring the attendance and testimony of witnesses and the production of any evidence relating to any matter that the corporation is empowered to investigate by paragraph one. The attendance of witnesses and the production of evidence may be required from any place within the United States or any designated place of hearing within the United States. And that reference back to paragraph one, that is the paragraph where they talk about all these draconian reporting requirements and disclosures and the regulation of the agents, the nil agents, athlete agents, and these third-party contractors. And then they give themselves the authority to seek redress in a federal district court if someone refuses a subpoena. So they're acting as this private entity for the purposes of due process and public disclosures, but then they're acting as the most powerful government agency when it comes to police powers. So they are just a, a little PTA nonprofit when it comes to their responsibilities, but when it comes to their authorities, they are the FBI, the Justice Department, and the Attorney General. And that is just a, a shocking authority. And when you see the way that this bill is laid out, this is what I think Bob Gates was referring to when he said that this constitutional committee needs to align responsibilities and authorities. And that, again, only makes sense in the context of enforcement and infractions and where they choose to legislate and what they choose to enforce. But this subpoena power thing is bad, bad news. And I don't know how you can claim not to be a government actor when you have subpoena power. That's the long and short of it. And then let's see what else they have. And then they talk about the Federal Trade Commission. I just want to address that too, because a lot of these bills, the both in the House and the Senate, they look to the FTC as the enforcement mechanism, but the FTC is flaccid on these issues. It doesn't know really anything about sports-related issues. You have all the problems with the FTC that Linda Livingstone was identifying at state level. You have these state entities that are responsible for name, image, and likeness, but they don't really have any experience with it, so that they don't know what they're doing. The same is true with the FTC, and there's this uh, Sport Agent Trust and Responsibility Act that was put into place in 2004, which doesn't have much teeth, and it relates to the regulation of athlete agents. And and it's done virtually nothing in the regulation of athlete agents. And so this is just window dressing to make it look like there's a federal agency in charge of enforcement. But when you actually read the bills, these bills, there is this commission or this federal corporation or some third party administrator that is actually the power player that has all the authorities. And in this case, has the authorities of the highest levels of law enforcement in this country and the court system. And it's just an extraordinary power. This bill is just basically turning the NCAA into an outright police state. So let me just keep going here. Let's see. Oh, and I'll throw this in too. So they talk about uh, pr the process for addressing grievances. And when it comes to complaints by student athletes, if they have a problem with the way that a school has treated them under this these federal nil rules and the federalization of the name, image, and likeness market, they can go to this government corporation and they can ask for redress. But there's virtually no due process here. So now again, after getting all these powerful authorities, when it comes to enforcement of student-athlete complaints, all of a sudden they're back to being just a, a little old PTA. And it says the student-athlete may file with the board a complaint alleging that an intercollegiate athletics association, a conference, or an institution of higher education has punished or prohibited the participation of the student-athlete in an amateur intercollegiate athletic event or amateur intercollegiate athletic competition in violation of sections A or B. And then you can file that. There's no process that's really defined in terms of what the range of rights you have in pressing that grievance. And then it talks about the authority that the board has to remedy any violation of the athlete's interests, which I think would be hard to do the way this bill is written. But it says that, uh, let's see, 
The board shall issue an order stating the findings of the board regarding whether the association, conference, or institution has punished or prohibited the participation of the student-athlete. So you're back to the same issue you have with the NCAA. The people who are looking at these student-athlete grievances are uh, the very people against whom the grievances are directed. And they're judging whether or not this grievance is legitimate. And in the extraordinarily unlikely event that this board finds that there has been a violation of the student-athletes' rights or interests, then the only remedy is for the board to issue an order telling the institution or the conference or the national association to remove the punishment and then to not do it again. So the remedy that the athlete has is a declaration from this board that they can go back to competing and that the institution just tisk tisk don't do that again. But if an athlete or an agent or a third-party contractor even breathes the wrong way under this bill, they can get hauled in front of the board under subpoena and under threat of judicial penalty in a United States district court to answer to whatever the board wants them to answer to. And this is the bill that you have lobbyists, high-powered lobbyists being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote behind the scenes on behalf of the Big 12 Conference. And this is promoting the interests of student-athletes. This is striking a blow for modernization of college sports. This is an independent third-party decision-making process. That's independence under the NCAA's view of the world, under the Big 12 Conference's view of the world, under Linda Livingstone's view of the world. And this bill is representative of all of the bills that have been presented in the Senate or the House by the NCAA and its minions behind the scene. This is how the sausage is being made. And it makes a mockery of these institutional interests claiming that they're acting in good faith on behalf of the student athletes. This is just an income protection campaign and a revenue stream protection campaign. And they just want to snuff out the athletes' rights movement. And I just think they're closer to that than people want to acknowledge. And before I leave the, the terms of this bill, I want to talk about how it characterizes the federal protections and immunities, the three things that the NCAA has been fighting for all along from the very beginning, starting in 2019 and then formally in February of 2020 in that first hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. But they have three provisions towards the end of the bill. The first one is called Employment Matters. And it's section eight. And it says, notwithstanding any other provisions of federal or state law, student athlete may not be considered an employee of an intercollegiate athletics association, a conference or an institution of higher education based on the participation of such student athlete in amateur intercollegiate athletics events or amateur intercollegiate athletic competitions. So what does that mean? It means athletes can't be employees, which means athletes can't form a union. They cannot withhold their labor as a remedy to all of these un-American restrictions that have been put on them. They, I guess they could still uh, withhold their labor outside of the union context, but they cannot engage in collective bargaining. They won't have the right under this provision to form a union recognized under federal law that would give them collective bargaining rights. And that's because, as I've discussed in other episodes, and particularly in connection with the Northwestern case in 2014, in order to establish a union, you first have to establish that you are an employee. And this provision makes that impossible. And this is just un-American. It has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. Now let's go to section nine, limitation of liability. An intercollegiate athletics association, a conference or an institution of higher education that complies with the requirements under this act shall not be subject to liability based on action taken by the intercollegiate athletics association, conference, or institution of higher education before the date of the enactment of this act under one any federal or state statute relating or regulating trade or competition, or two, 
any federal or state statute relating to tortious interference based on concepts of unfair competition. This is an absolute antitrust immunity. The very antitrust immunity they tried to get in the Austin case and the very antitrust immunity that a unanimous Supreme Court said you can't have. Now, they did say you can always go back to Congress, but this is outright antitrust immunity, not some little narrow safe harbor that the schools can snuggle into and feel safe in a very narrow way in matters that relate only to name, image, and likeness. And then I want to go to the preemption provision because, again, this is just a perfect example of how dishonest this campaign has been because all these witnesses now are saying that they want federal preemption, but only for name, image, and likeness laws. But that's not what this preemption provision says. I'm going to read it. And when I read through it, you're going to be led to believe that it is limited to name, image, and likeness. But then we're going to break it down a little bit, okay? So this preemption provision says, no state or political subdivision of a state may establish or continue in effect any law, regulation, rule, requirement, or standard that governs or regulates the compensation, publicity rights, employment status, or eligibility for competition of a student-athlete, including any provision that governs or regulates the commercial use of the name, image, or likeness of a student-athlete. So you have a reference to name, image, and likeness, but that is simply a component part of the broader preemption of any rule or regulation that relates to compensation, publicity rights, employment status, or eligibility for competition. This is an absolute preemption provision that takes the states completely out of the regulatory field with respect to any aspect of NCAA regulation or this federal corporation's regulation. It is an absolute preemption provision. Yet Linda Livingstone sits in front of this congressional committee and says that's not what she's seeking. Yet this bill that is drafted, I think, probably by the NCAA and the Power Five and their lobbyists. This is the bill that Linda Livingstone's Big 12 Conference and their lobbyists are arguing for in Congress. This is breathtaking misdirection, but this is the reality of what's going on behind the scenes, and this is the reality of the forces that the athletes are up against. I've built this podcast around the theme of the NCAA's quest for the iron throne of college sports regulation and supremacy in college sports through the elimination of external regulators and asking for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And I just want to point something out. Those three provisions that I just read, they take about a third of a page in a document that's probably 15 pages long. In just those three short provisions and that one third of a page, the athletes' rights movement has been decimated. It's over. And on the backside of that, the athletes have absolutely nowhere to turn. They can't use self-help through collective bargaining. They can't form a union. They can't file a federal antitrust suit. They can't file a suit under state law. And they can't go to any of those bodies. They can't go to their state legislature and say, we're just having our rights steamrolled here. We need some help. That's exactly what they did with name, image, and likeness because the NCAA refused to act. They lied to these athletes, really going back to 2009. And when they first started talking about name, image, and likeness in connection with the O'Bannon case. And the NCAA has lied and lied and lied. And it has never proactively done anything for the benefit of these athletes. It's only been under threat from external regulators, which is why in this name, image, and likeness context, they saw an opportunity to eliminate all of those external regulatory threats in one fell swoop. In just three provisions and one third of a page, the NCAA is seeking the most audacious regulatory power grab in the history of American sports. And they are just doing it without any sense of conscience, without any sense of responsibility, and they're doing it under the cover of darkness. And that's the way this organization operates. And the athletes don't have a single person in Washington, D.C. going to Congress to make their case. And this again explains why over 
seven hearings over 20 months with 35 witness slots. There hasn't been a single revenue-producing athlete, a high-powered Power 5 football player or a high-powered Power 5 men's basketball player, and no African-American revenue-producing athlete. Not one, because they don't want that story to be told. They want to just control every aspect of this process. And remember, among those seven hearings, there was only one that was truly athlete-friendly and in which the uh, Democrats had control of the witness list. And it was not an NCAA dog and pony show. And what happened? The Republicans boycotted that hearing. And the justification for that boycott was that they were not given enough input into what that witness list was going to look like. They lost control of the narrative in that one hearing. And they said, we're taking our ball and we're going home. They just said, up yours to the athletes' rights movement. And the witnesses at that hearing were all African-American. And they were women and, and one parent of a football player who died of heated exhaustion. And that got zero coverage, zero attention. And that's just the power of the NCAA, the Power Five, and these big-time universities who have enormous influence at every level of institutional power in this country. And when we're evaluating all of these hearings, these seven hearings that have been conducted this far, and there will likely be more, and you look at the way they're staged, the way that they have been politicized, the way that they shamelessly appeal to our worst instincts and through divisive narratives and pitting interests against one another. And then you look at the ease with which those narratives are adopted by decision makers. You really see how powerful the NCAA and the Power Five interests are and how good they have been at getting their way. And they don't have the legislation yet. And again, that's a big hurdle to cross because Congress has never legislated this way in college sports. But I think the NCAA is inching closer to this than people think. And I think that is a very bad thing. And that's why looking at what happened at this hearing on September 30th is so important. So there you have it. So with that, I'm going to close this out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.